Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. It's so good to be here this morning with you all. I love that moment. It feels like throws me back to primary school when everyone just kind of hushes. Get your attention. Um, my name's Brittany. I'm one of the pastors here at Red, and I get to preach this morning, which I always love doing because it means I get to spend time with Jesus and in the Word this week, which has been so lovely. Um, and then get to share what I feel like Holy Spirit wanted me to, you know, speak to and. He's here and he's going to lead us um, as I speak and as you listen. And so I'm looking forward for the revelations that he brings. Um, But can, you know, I can't believe we're still in January, but I also can believe that we're in January. I'm in the like crazy muddled zone. Is anyone else with me? I literally wake up and I'm like, what day is it? And where am I meant to be? Um, I feel like we're in a bit of that weird cycle. It's actually only our second week back at church, but having a Sunday rhythm is really helping me be like, it is Sunday. I'm glad I remembered today, obviously, because I need to be here for a particular task. Um, But the chaos of January has begun already, and um, I have a particular type of personality who enjoys not doing things that other people do. Um, I don't know if there's others in the room. I'm sure you're out there. One of those is not falling or being coming at January with my New Year's resolutions. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not my personality. Others can do that. Um, But inevitably, I still find myself in that space of, what will my year look like, though? And having conversations with other people, you kind of begin to go, I'm not going to be doing that, though. Or, like, should I be doing that? Um, And I was chatting to a friend about this. We are having a discussion. It doesn't matter who you are, how intense you are in avoiding that, or if you're the other person on the other end of the scale that you're like, I'm about to do my New Year's resolutions and I'm ready. We all kind of get to this point in January where we end up just comparing our lives to others. It's a subtle thing that happens in the culture because we also all stop. When else, except for COVID, did we all stop and assess our lives and go, okay, how am I doing? How am I actually going? My version looks different to yours, perhaps, but we all kind of have a similar tendency to do it because we're all human. So I'll give you my version of the current thoughts I've had As a 34-year-old, at this time in my life, how am I going? Right, well, how's my savings for a house going? Not so great, a bit tricky on my own. Okay, I can't really be doing that. How's my career looking? Yeah, it's all right. I'd really like a family. That's not going to happen soon. I'm getting a little bit old, though, so what should I do about that? I'm 34, like, biologically, it's not going so well. Should I freeze my eggs? Oh, morally, how do I feel about that? Will I actually ever get married? Oh, I don't know. How do I feel about that? Hmm, what are my other friends doing? We inevitably do this. There's subtle things that we're constantly assessing. That just happens to be my version. But this morning, I want to ask a different question, because I think as followers of Jesus, we're not actually called to look side to side to work out where we're at and how we're doing. We've got to look up at him. And even as a church, 
we could sit here and look at 2024 and think to ourselves, how's our podcast going? What are numbers looking like? What's the popularity of Red? Should we expand further? What else is happening? But actually, I think collectively, our question, and I believe what Holy Spirit wanted me to ask this morning, is actually, do we love Jesus? How am I going with my love and devotion to Jesus? I think that's actually the question we should ask ourselves in January every year. Because if we don't, inevitably, inevitably, you know it. I won't say it. You know what I'm saying. We will end up comparing and then making a decision about where life's headed based on insecurity rather on the confidence of Jesus' love and his vision. So this morning, we're going to take some time to come before Jesus as he asks us the question, do you love me? We're going to sit in scripture and we're going to be like Peter, who was asked this question three times. We're going to explore that text together. And so before we do, I'd love to focus in on Jesus. Now, if you've never done that before, that's totally fine. You can ask and pray for Holy Jesus. Holy Jesus, he is holy. There's a combo there, Holy Spirit, Jesus, Trinity, all in one, you know. Um, You can just ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you spend time with Jesus in the morning or in the evening, whatever that looks like, I would love for you to go to that space right now. Collectively, we're going to bring ourselves before Jesus, and it's going to be silent for a little bit with, obviously, the beautiful sound of children that are in this lovely room, and just actually fix our eyes on him. So however you do that, please go ahead. Let's give him our full attention. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. As Jesus stands before you now, he asks you that question. Do you love me? Amen. Well, let's jump into some of the scriptures to explore this further. And as we do, let's not lose our eyes on Jesus because we're about to read about him of a time a while ago, but he's actually really present now. As well. So we're going to look at John's Gospel and we're going to go to the very end of John's Gospel, John 21. It is the fourth Gospel. It is a little bit different to the other ones. It doesn't follow the same pattern. John liked to be a little bit rogue. Maybe he was a bit like my personality of, I don't want to do it like everyone else. I'm going to do something different. He uh, was a great writer and it's kind of book, it's broken down into a couple of sections. So we're, we're coming in on the end, but it's got um, obviously an introduction, which they all do these books. And then it's broken down into a book of signs, book of glory, and then the end here. So this is the final chapter. Um, And John is traditionally um, accredited to this gospel. He calls himself the beloved disciple, which I think is a bit cheeky, but also, I mean, if that's how he thought Jesus saw him, then that's good. Um, And he actually wrote this book in Ephesus and quite a long time after the other gospels, which I just think is really fascinating, particularly with the text we'll read you'll see that um, John actually was the last surviving apostle. He was the last one left of the 12, which would have been a really interesting position to hold. Um, And you can see and feel that in the way that he writes of his 
desire for people to truly know who Jesus is and for that not to be refuted. All right, so we're going to go to John 21. I'll give you a little bit of a lineup of what has happened in this chapter because we're heading literally towards the end of it. Basically, Jesus has died and risen, and this will be his third um, appearance post-resurrection. Now, you start this chapter hearing about Peter and uh, John, the beloved disciple, and a bunch of other fellows who are from the Galilee area have headed back to Galilee to hang out after all that's happened. Just let's really be present with them. They've had a pretty hectic time. They've spent three years with Jesus learning about who he is, being challenged, being sent out to cast out demons, pray for the sick, see the kingdom come. They've then seen their saviour and Lord be crucified be raised from the dead, and now he's appearing to them. So emotionally, possibly a little bit all over the place. <laughs> Understandably. They're in Galilee, and they're going to go do something that feels familiar, which is fishing. So they've been out fishing at night, in the boat, caught nothing. Does this sound familiar? And then all of a sudden, it's morning, and there's someone on the shore calling out to them. They don't realize it's Jesus, but he's just checking in to be like, hey, you got any fish? They answer no in response. He's like, try the other side. You wonder as they're doing it if they're like, hold on a minute, someone else said this once. Anyway, so they obediently do it, start pulling a whole load of fish in, and then all of a sudden John turns to Peter and is like, it's the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat, runs through the water to greet him. The others slowly come back in. Jesus basically is like, guys, let's have breakfast. He's got a fire going. They're by the Sea of Galilee. They're sitting around. He breaks bread and the fish and offers it to them. What a beautiful thing to do. That's so familiar for them, right? Jesus is like, I'm going to put you in a space where you know me so well. Then we get to sit in on a conversation he has with Peter. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, good. Gosh. So I felt like that was an all right intro. Probably a bit long. Could have shortened it. Sorry. Anyway, here we go. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Even Peter succumbs to comparison. I don't know if it's January, but it's happening. 
As always, there's so much richness in a text, and I'd love to just look at a few things within this to kind of explore and understand that question that Jesus is asking Peter, and he asks us today. To start, if you notice the way that Jesus addresses Peter, he had renamed him earlier on in the gospel, Peter the Rock, but he doesn't address him in that way. He's using a different title. He's using the name before that, which was Simon, son of John, not Peter the Rock, because Peter hasn't quite lived up to that title. If you know the gospel story, you know what's happened to Peter just before Jesus dies. He actually denies who Jesus is three times. So there's a lot of parallels of being asked three times if Peter loves Jesus. And so even in his name, in the way he's addressed, he's facing his limitations. He's acknowledged in a way his humanity and his failure. And let's also be real. If you were Peter, how much would you have been thinking about that moment where you did deny Jesus? This man that you have loved and earlier on professed. And let's be honest, Peter, a little arrogant way. Earlier in the gospel, I'm going to love you the most. No one else is going to love you like I am. That's basically how he says it. That's a Brit, you know, rephrase here, but you check that out. He's just like, these guys are going to let you down. I'll remain. From that place to denying Jesus three times, I'm sure the memories of those denials would have been super present for Peter. But in this moment, in this conversation between Peter and Jesus, Jesus is offering him a new opportunity to trust and depend on him again. And what Peter does, his choice, will actually determine whether he does fulfill that title as Peter the Rock. There's a moment here of reconciliation with Jesus and reinstatement to be called Peter the Rock and to lead the church. Reconciliation and reinstatement. That's what Jesus is doing here. How kind of Jesus, right? This is the third time he's reappeared, and he's so intentional. I'm going to go and speak to Peter because I know that he, this will be sitting on him. I want to reconcile. I want to give him opportunity to trust again. He's the same with us. He'll come to you time and time again, offering that reconciliation. Do you know what else is really fascinating in the text? Although it does say Peter felt hurt, he responds every time with, you know that I love you. He doesn't come back super defensive. He's not like, well, I was by the fire, and like if, when I said I didn't know you, it's like, it was, like I do know you, but I was feeling really pregnant. No, none of that. He doesn't begin this long list of defense or rationale for why he did what he did. He just stands there boldly and courageously and vulnerably and in saying, I love you, or Lord, you know that I love you, is saying, yeah, I know I did wrong, but I still want to learn how to love you. I want to learn how to love you, Jesus, even though I failed when I said I wouldn't. Looking at this passage, Timothy Keller pointed out a few things, and he said that Jesus kind of affirms Peter every time he responds. The verbs used um, are actually from this one verb called, I'm going to say it wrong, poimeno, which is actually a word for pastor, shepherd, and leader. So he's saying this over him again and again. He's saying, I love you, Lord. And he's saying, you're my shepherd. I love you, Lord. You're a pastor. 
I love you, Lord. You're a leader, Peter. Timothy Keller said, it's like every time Jesus says those things, it's like he's saying, I want you to see the brokenness of who you are. And in that moment, Peter opens up a little bit to be like, I see my brokenness. And it's in that very place Jesus then can replace the brokenness with love and affirmation. Remember, this is the same Jesus that you just spent time with before and is here now. There's such a humility in Peter, which we actually haven't seen throughout the Gospels, but it shows the way that he is being changed. His humility to go, yeah, Jesus, I've done wrong, but I want to love you. Will, you. will you let me? And Jesus is like, yes, rise, Peter. Be a leader, pastor, shepherd that you are. He lets down his defenses. Rita Snowden, who was a 20th century Methodist writer from New Zealand, says, if you ask me what forgiveness means, it is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. This is exactly what Jesus is doing for Peter. Peter, in the very place where you said you didn't want to let me down, you did. But I trust you again to stand and rise and forever for the rest of your life proclaim that you love me, you know me, and you will follow me wherever I lead you. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe what forgiveness is? And I also love that when we're looking at this text, Jesus is saying, do you love me? It's that relational reconciliation. But also all the answers are not just about Jesus, but about the bride. Jesus came, he died and rose again for the bride. And the bride is his church. We are his church in this generation and time. But he died for his church. And so loving Jesus and following him also means a commitment to love and care for his bride, who he died for. And so that's why he says to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. They go hand in hand. Reconciliation with Jesus, that love and devotion to him, and reinstatement to be the church. Not attend it, not just create it, but to be by loving and caring for his bride, who he died for. And this is what we see when he gets to the end of that dialogue with Peter. In verse 18 to 19, he says to Peter, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. It's like Jesus is saying, Peter, this vulnerability that you're showing me right now, this is a lifelong posture. You will forever be vulnerable and open and loving in the same way that I have been. This posture is one of the most vulnerable, is it not? Jesus says, follow in my footsteps, follow me. He's also saying to Peter, will you love these? Remember who's Peter's sitting with. It's the disciples, but it's also Jesus saying to Peter, people are going to come to you. The church, that's what happens. People arrive in all forms and shapes and sizes, broken, fearful, excited. And Jesus is saying, love them. Love them even when they don't love you. Love them even when they persecute you. Peter, will you love them? Will you love my bride? Do you know what really is incredible? 
is Peter did, in fact, die by being crucified. But at the time, when he was told that was how he was going to die, he was fine with it, except he said, can you please crucify me upside down because I am not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. That reconciliation and redemption, that played out in his life. And what a beautiful reflection at the end to stand and to die in the very posture he was called to live. But still honouring Jesus and loving him in that way. Peter is asked to love Jesus and love the bride, just as we are. But even in that moment, Peter turns. He's just had this beautiful encounter with Jesus. But what does he do? He takes his eyes off Jesus and he's like, oh, I wonder about John, the beloved disciple. What's going to happen to John, Jesus? What is this going to look like? Verse 21 to 22, Peter turned and saw John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And I say fair enough for Peter, right? What he's just been told is quite confronting. And they actually did come to different ends, their lives. But Peter and John had very different calls. The way that they brought the gospel and revealed who Jesus, who Jesus is was super important that they did it in the way they were designed to do. Do you know, I love the way that C.S. Lewis explains this in the Chronicles of Narnia when he puts in Aslan's mouth Jesus as Aslan. And the kids, whenever they ask about their siblings in that story of like, what about, what about uh, Susan? What's going to happen to her? Lucy asking Aslan. And Aslan says to Lucy, I only tell you your story. We are designed to keep our eyes on Jesus and to love the people around us and journey with others, but to focus on what he's asked us to do and what it means to love him and love his bride. But we are just like Peter. And we tend to look around and compare, as I said, as we started this sermon with. And in James 4, James kind of speaks to this. He speaks to our humanity, and he talks about the fact that a lot of what we kind of wrestle with or the comparison actually comes from the inside. There's something that's unsettled in us. If you look at James 4, again, my paraphrasing, please check it out in the Originage, whatever version that is for you. But Timothy Keller writes this in response to that and in light of all of this. He says, I propose the Bible says here, all of us here, as in James 4, all of us without God's help live lives of illusion. We spend almost all of our lives trying to prove to other people and to ourselves we're something then other than what we really are. We cannot admit our flaws. We cannot admit our weakness. We can't admit our brokenness to one another or to ourselves. Therefore, because we can't be transparent to ourselves, we can't be transparent to others. Unless we are reconciled to the reality of who we are, who we really are, unless we see ourselves as who we really are, we can't be reconciled to others. Jesus can change that. And the case study is Peter. This is the same for our lives today. Jesus is offering that reconciliation and reinstatement.
what does it look like for us to be like Peter and be vulnerable, admit our flaws? And what does it look like that to do that with others as we're called to be disciples and followers together of Jesus? We're not called to be competitors with our brothers and sisters, but actually companions. Just as Peter and John were, looking to others, we have many with us. And we all have different gifts and different convictions. And actually, that's quite good. That's what makes the bride so beautiful, in some sense. We're all just as loved and cared for by Jesus. We don't need to worry about that, even if you're John and you call yourself the beloved disciple. And these companions we have, they're meant to inspire us and challenge us. But they were meant to remain companions, not competitors. Because we are called to look at Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So as we started, as you spent that time looking at Jesus, so our life is actually meant to be lived. So I come back to that question again as we look at him. As Jesus stands before you, and ask that question, do you love me? Knowing he asked it of Peter, knowing that it means a commitment to love his bride, Jesus is asking you this morning, do you love him? What does it look like for us this year to increase our love of Jesus? Maybe you followed him for a long time, But I believe the invitation, as I shared this year, is not to plan our way through, but actually to increase our love so that by the end of 2024, you can answer that question and you can say, yeah, I can see the ways that Jesus has taught me to love him in a whole new level, in a whole new way, or uh, towards other people, or towards myself, or within the church. But you know, sometimes our pain, our unprocessed grief, has the potential to affect our faithfulness to that word, to that choice, in our ability to love Jesus more. Just as it was with Peter, he comes to me and he's like, I want to reconcile, we need to look at this pain because I want to replace that and expand that in your heart so that you can love me more and therefore love others. It's the same for us. Reconciliation before reinstatement. It says in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Friends, sometimes I think we've narrowed the gospel so much that it's lost its power. But I want to make the call, and I say this of myself, That's our problem because the power of the gospel has not changed. It has lasted up until this point and has changed lives. Have we narrowed the gospel too much if it's lost the transformative power in our lives? And what does it look like to allow that to be expanded? The power and the everlasting nature of the kingdom has not diminished. It is at hand here and now. But why is there a gap for us? As we enter into 2024, I suppose the invitation in that question Jesus has of do you love me, comes with the other question of where are the parts of me that I'm actually not loving Jesus well? 
or his bride. And the best person to ask to bring that revelation is Holy Spirit, who searches all things, God and us, and to allow him to show us areas where he wants to expand our heart to love Jesus even more, where he wants to bring that moment of reconciliation. And maybe you know what these spaces are. Maybe that's what drives your vision at the start of the year when you compare with others. There's an ongoing wrestle that you have. Or maybe you're in a cycle and you're like, 2024, I don't want it to be the same anymore. But you've tried multiple things to break that. What would it look like to partner with Holy Spirit? He was actually the creator of the everlasting. If you think about it, the things that we do have a time frame. You know, you set a new goal at the gym, you can only do it for a certain amount of time before sometimes you lose steam and that's just a moment in time. But when you set or you come to Holy Spirit and say, change me, move me, shape me, he's the creator of the universe. Therefore, whatever he does in you is going to have an everlasting effect, which is actually, actually what your heart wants, right? Consider the power of sitting in Holy Spirit and letting him show you areas where he wants to bring reconciliation. Have the courage to step in as Peter did and realize that the transformation that takes place is everlasting. He raised Jesus from the dead. There's nothing he can't restore in you, redeem, renew, bring back to life. What if 2024, this year, as a church and as a people, we were marked by the change that Holy Spirit brings? And you can look back on 2024 and be like, that's when Holy Spirit broke that over my life. That's when Holy Spirit healed that part of who I was that I'd carried since childhood. I no longer walk with that. That's the year I learned to love Jesus from the depths of my soul. That it came easy, that I just wanted to spend time with him and tell others about him. Do you want a faith like that? Yeah, yeah, okay. Just checking. <laughs> just checking. <laughs> so I just want to look at a couple of things, just a few more. Because sometimes it's helpful to be really real with ourselves. Of actually, what is in the way? What are the, what are the fences of the narrow path that we've set in our hearts? How do we break out of them? Well, sometimes we need to acknowledge what those are. We've talked about soul care a lot over 2023, and there's a reason for that. I'm about to share a table of um, some content from that book, as well as another, as an opportunity to look at some of the core lies that we believe as humans and where we get our value from sometimes. Just as a little, little framework to have a look at. This could be a little bit confronting, but we're at church and that's actually a part of being at church, to be confronted with our humanity. You're welcome. All right, shall we throw it up, Chris? <laughs> so the three core lies that we often wrestle with as humans are performance, people-pleasing, and control. Woo! Now, there are, you're not, probably not going to sit in one category. There's a couple you kind of might float in and out of. If you are someone who sits in the performance category, your issue, it's about your value, where you find your value, the lies that you may have heard as a child or the things that were spoken over you, is that your value is dependent on your performance, how well you do at school, how well you do at work, how well you do in comparison to your siblings. But also, if you were someone who was abandoned or neglected, you were trying to perform to receive value and love. 
I was reading a book around some of this, around attachments, which is also what some of this content comes from. And it was really beautiful because it talked about the fact that spiritual disciplines are, they have such a richness to them and they increase our devotion to Jesus, our revelation of who Jesus is, but they also have the power to break these lies. And they can sit in opposition to the tendencies that we have when we believe these lies. And so as I was reading that book, it says, if you are someone who struggles with performance and finding value in that space, one of the best spiritual disciplines for you is silence and solitude, which let me tell you is going to be tough. Because it always is. Silence and solitude is one of the quickest ways to allow your insecurities to rise. It's one of the quickest ways to have your defenses come up. Oh, by the way, if this came up and you were like, that's not me, I just want to say that's possibly one of your defenses. <laughs> and it might indicate that it is you. <laughs> so, <laughs> silence and solitude. There are many books about this. You can explore this further. But there's power in letting that stuff come up. Think about Peter. He's sitting by the Sea of Galilee. He's probably thought about that interaction over and over again. And in silence and solitude, it's coming up. And Jesus wants to address that with him. He comes to him in his rawness. He's had a lot of time alone. Jesus has not been there. In that space, God can do amazing things if we let him and if we have the courage to. Now, the things that come up in that space can vary for different people, and that might mean seeking professional help. But also, let's remember that Holy Spirit brings these things up because he wants healing and uh, revelation for us. And I love that passage in 1 Kings that talks about Jesus and God. Sorry, God's voice isn't going to be found in, on top of a mountain or in the thunderstorm. It's actually going to be a gentle whisper. But we, are we listening enough? Because if you are someone who struggles with the call I have performance, you're seeking approval. And Jesus actually does want to say over you, I love you. But will you be silent enough to hear it? And remember when Jesus says it, in partnership with Holy Spirit as you hear it, that has an impact. That's not going to float through and disappear. That's going to mark you. And the more you meditate on that, that is what becomes reality. People pleasing. Is that me? I don't know that it... No? Oh, I think you're okay. All good? It's still good? Thank you. Yes, it did go boom. Hopefully no more of those. Thank you. Very sweet. People pleasing, you are looking for value possibly by your reputation, success, prestige, and attention of others. You know who you are. It's doing it again, I know. But I'm standing still. I'm, oh, we're going to do handheld. So <clears throat> anyway, you may have this as one of your core lies or it may creep up. And sometimes there's multiple ways that this comes up. It can be controlling other people. It can be controlling your surroundings. It could even be um, using possessions as a source of comfort. So, yeah, whatever category that is for you. Simplicity is one of the spiritual disciplines that can help you walk in the opposite direction towards Jesus and allowing him to fill those places. If you want to find out more about this or understand it more, please read Soul Care and follow up on any other books. But I thought I'd just throw in some practical ways. So as we come to Jesus and he offers that reconciliation, a way to go, actually, Jesus, can you expand my heart? I want to love you more this year and show me the lies that I believe that are not true so that I can love you more and believe in who I am and the way you've made me. Something else to consider as we do this is 
as I spoke about, we're not meant to have competitors, but companions. And discernment around what God's doing in your life and what he's asking of you is really important. We're not meant to do this solo. So what does it look like for us to grow our friendships this year? In spaces where they can call things out in you for accountability. And I want to pitch. Sometimes we fall into this pattern, and again, I put my hand up for this, that sometimes we have our friendship groups and they look really similar to us of, okay, I'll do my category because I'm the one with the microphone. I'm 34. I'm friends with a lot of single people, which I love. I love you all. But they hold a particular perspective, which sometimes is really comforting to be like, you know my scenario. But then sometimes we can't see outside of that and we need to have friendships with people that are married who can say, actually, let me tell you, marriage is pretty rough as well as joyful. And they can say to you, wow, what a gift that you have to be single, but also I sit with you and it being difficult. We need to have friends that come from different contexts. We need to have friends of different genders, educations, ethnicities, classes. Is this sounding a bit like the church? What does it look like this year to maybe step out of a bubble you might be in, to invite others in and be friends with others that will actually challenge you in your love for Jesus, who show you how they love Jesus, or what it means or the challenge they face in loving him and that you can speak and encourage them. Be a part of loving the bride. I just want to tell a story as I come to the end of this sermon. I uh, went to a funeral on Friday of my great uncle. Um, I had the privilege of standing with my grandfather as he spoke about his brother. And... uh, it's one of those funerals that funerals are always hard, but probably the best case scenario. Let me explain that. He was 94. He lived a very good life. And so you're there celebrating someone's life that has been long. And I have this beautiful image of him because I was always a kid when I interacted with him. And so I've got this like nostalgic rose-colored glasses kind of, this is what he was like. He was a man who was a farmer. He worked with his hands. He worked with my grandfather out in the fields, dairy farming, um, potato farming as well. Good, good solar man. They grew up in Gippsland. So we're out there for this funeral. And he just was hardworking. And you know what funerals, you hear different things from different people. And sometimes it's like, this is the achievements. These are all the things that they did. And so I was expecting that. I'd worked and sat with my pop as he was writing about his brother. And the way that my grandpa talked about his brother was beautiful. He talked about how kind he was. And the things that he remembered most were actually the way that he sacrificially gave to him time and time again. He told a story once of turning up with a new bike Um, a motorcycle, which was huge for them. They really had nothing. There was five kids and they basically worked the farm for their parents. So they'd wake up in the morning and have to like milk the cows before running off to school um, and constantly working. So this new motorbike turns up. Trevor was his name. That's my great uncle's name. Turns up with this bike, stands before my grandfather and says, this bike is just as much yours as it is mine. And my pop had story after story of the ways that Trevor was like, I give you what I have. And I was listening to my pop and I was like, he just felt so seen by Trevor. He was cared for and loved. And I'm like, that's so beautiful. That's a sibling, a beautiful sibling love. And then as I sat there on Friday, person after person jumps up and they're saying the same thing. But I'm hearing this from his daughter 
from their neighbours, from kids that just turned up on the farm. Every time Trevor had a visitor, think about the list of things he had to do. He was a farmer. He would stop, acknowledge the person, and get them involved in what they were doing, what he was doing. He loved them. He gave them a place. And every person gave testament to that. Trevor made me feel special. I felt seen by him. I felt loved by him. I was blown away. Imagine getting to 94 and people speaking about your life in that way. And it wasn't a really overtly Christian funeral, but the whole time I was like, Jesus, that's you. I can hear you in that. In every testament that's given, you come before us, you love us, you give us a place, you make us feel seen and known, even when you're busy running the entire world. He always has time for you. The kingdom is transferred relationally. And I realised as each person stood, Trevor did many things. He started many groups and that's all well and good and, that, and like good on him genuinely. But I think what marked me the most was seeing the fingerprints of the kingdom on the people that walked with him because he loved like Jesus did and he let his life be offered for others. And so as Jesus comes before you this morning and says, do you love me? What will it be like, not just at the end of 2024, but the end of our lives for people to say, I saw the love of Jesus in them. Not only did I see it, I received it. I felt seen by them. I know that they cared for me even when I was a little rat bag and I got in the way when they're trying to do what they need to do. It didn't matter. Will we be a church that people speak of, our love for one another and for every person that walks through the door here? I would love for that to be the way that people speak about the church. And we actually have a choice because you're the church. We're the church. Just because I work for Red Church, that does not make me Red Church. (laughs) You are just as much Red Church as I am. What does it look like for us to join this great cloud of witnesses and obediently follow Jesus, just as Trevor did in his own way? You were never going to meet Trevor. There'll be a lot of people who won't know about him. But the power of his life is being transferred into other lives now that are walking around currently loving others. May we do the same. So as I come to the end, I ask that question again. Well, Jesus asked it. Do you love him? And will you continue to love him and love his bride this year? Because he is desperate to walk closely with you, to show more of his heart for you, to show more of his kingdom to you, and to actually give you a beautiful vision for 2024 that isn't based on the people around you, but is a reflection of his heart and the way he made you. Why don't you stand? We're going to respond to this as we step into that reconciliation and reinstatement. As you stand with your companions, not your competitors. As we come to Jesus in communion.